And my drug dealer told me later, he's like, yeah, we went in with guns. Like we were there to collect on some drugs, some money. And I was like, and I wasn't there. And I'm like, I mean, if I had been there, who knows? Uh, last year I got di diagnosed with cancer again. You want to run through that, that grieving process? Cause I think that's something that, that many people don't talk about is holding space for that inner child that really needs to feel their emotions to go through the grieving process, that deep healing. How did you go about that? Welcome to the Nirvana Mind and Body Podcast, a place for conscious conversations, a space to feel, expand your mind, and learn to become your fullest self. Welcome back. Good to have everybody here. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. Nice, nice. Phenomenal. We're here with a special guest, Sam Morris, Sam Gibbs Morris. Thank you for being here on the show on the podcast uh looking forward for this conversation my yeah, friend me too thank you so much for having me it was actually jake's idea jake's like it was my idea. sam on yeah 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 i put i, I put you out there so thanks bud yeah now Appreciate you're here yeah. yeah here we go <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm all about hearing your story and all the things that you're doing awesome um we'll just dive right in who is sam oh <laughs> it's a loaded question <laughs> yeah, right who am i <laughs> Yeah, Sam, where are you from? What you yeah. doing? What um, you about? <clears throat> so I'm from Vermont. Grew up in very, very rural, like small town Vermont. I think my town, there's zero stoplights, one post office, one general store, country club, like small church, like you, you typical Green Mountain, Vermont, New England, small town. Jake, you know you're from up there. Mm -hmm. Like it yep. was that. <clears throat> um, and then, I, yeah, I grew up there. Uh, schools were always really small, like 84 kids in my graduating high school class. So, okay. yeah, super small. Um, Could I get a little bit closer to that mic? If you want, you can even lift the, the whole entire arm just like there. There we perfect. go. There we yeah, go. Yeah, that's All good. Right. Make sure that's you're good. crystal clear. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I grew up in Vermont, and uh, my childhood was phenomenal. Um, like, there was no, and, and when I say this, there's, there's a little bit of a caveat, is that, yeah, I didn't know until recent. When I say recently, like the past ten years, the like kind of the shadow side of my childhood, and so um, look, looking back, like I always said, like childhood was fucking amazing. Like I grew up there was a country club right down the street. I was playing tennis and golf every day, every summer. I was skiing all winters. Like we'd go on trips. There was never abuse or fighting a lot in the household. It was always a really joyful mm. uh, part. Like our birthday parties were my parents' parties, and there was always like you know, we had bluegrass bands on the front lawn in the summer, and like. It was like really great. And then as an adult, I had some things come up, you know, addiction being the big one mm. and then mental illness and depression and anxiety. And, um, yeah, I was like, kind of like, like, I don't like, I would go into AA for example, and, or like therapy sessions or group processes. And these guys would be telling stories about like, you know, deep, deep sexual mm -hmm. abuse and like verbal abuse and physical abuse. And I'm just like, why, how am I here? Yeah. Like I don't have that. Like I was trying to make that my story, and like yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't have that in my background, in my story, and so I had to do some digging. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of us think that um, if the grass is green, the white picket fence, as yeah. you just explained, there there seems to be no issues. But uh, right. obviously, that's not the case. I think a lot of us, um, no matter what background we come from, you know, the mind can really create some. Uh, some well, it just, it just like we were talking about before this, like we look for reasons. Yeah, like true. give me a reason to why feel. Why do I feel like I feel? Give me. I need a. I need a reason. Mm, like I need mm. a, some sort of analytical. Yeah, what thing. is this? Yeah. I need to know what this I need is. To, who did this to me? Yeah. Like why am I? Why am I like? Why am I like I am? Which mm. is a valid question, and you know we really get to open our minds and we're looking for it because like I I don't have the abuse that would suggest 
that I came from an alcoholic home. Like that doesn't mm. line up with my story of alcoholism. Yeah. Mm. And so like we, you know, we looked a lot of times to the external stuff like, oh, that, that you're telling me, tell me your story. What can I, how can, what can I pull from that? Which again, great. But like, I, I didn't have the other stories to like, give me, give me a reason why I spent 15 years in the bottom of a bottle in a pile of cocaine and then was in, in and out of jail 20 times. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Like I didn't have that external, like I didn't have, the stories I was hearing in my experience didn't match up. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to digging. So when you started digging, yeah. Um, what did you actually find when you actually took that time to go within? And how did you do the digging? How did yeah. you um, start creating that space for yourself to go within and have those moments to, uh, you know, to realize? So it was a <clears throat> kind of a slow burn. It started my my like digging started when I was about thirty five. I didn't stop drinking until I was thirty eight. But I was introduced to. Um, um, it's kind of, you know, landmark, the, mm-hmm. the landmark trainings that they do. It's like, you know, group stuff. Like, so this friend of mine, uh, she started her own version of that called gratitude training, which is, it's deep, like kind of Hindu based, like, mm-hmm. who am I? Like you asked me who I am. Like, it's kind of, yeah. that's like one of yeah. the questions they ask you a lot and you're like, Oh, I'm a real estate broker. Cause I was at the time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not what we're looking for here. Yeah. And so when I started, I dived in and dove in and started looking at this stuff and my childhood was great. And I was scared every day of my life because not of other people, like, you know, the abuse stuff, but I was scared of my own body mm-hmm. because my own body was, it, I had severe asthma and severe, severe eczema. Mm-hmm. So, so I literally felt discomfort like in my in physical skin yeah. and, uh, and then really bad food allergies. So I, I had this like, constant threats you know i like like right now the spring here like i walk out and see a layer of yellow on my car in vermont growing up and i'm like oh god where's my inhaler i keep that shit right here Mm. because i knew that there was an immediate threat and like and it's to the point where i would end up in the hospital three times a year for a week because of like an asthma attack that an inhaler would not fix yeah and so i would have to like 2 a.m my mom would rush me to the hospital or like i was there was one time i was playing little league baseball and there's a deeper story here, but like, again, I, all I knew was that I had, I had a real bad asthma attack and I ended up on third base after hitting a triple. And next thing I know, my dad's carrying me in his arms like this across the field. And I'm just mm. like, you know, a rag doll. That's real fear though. Wow. That type of, that type of stuff is real. So like, yeah. even though you didn't come from mm. say your, your, your normal trauma mm-hmm. story, uh, those are very traumatic moments for a child to go through, yeah. especially with air and oxygen. Air it's like that's oxygen. as real food. as it fucking yeah. gets in food. That's as primal <clears throat> as it gets. So yeah. the fact that your trauma is built around that is uh, yeah. Legit. And so you, I mean, it happens enough times. You know, zero to ten years old when you go through that kind of like the first awakening at seven or eight when you be, when you come online. Mm. <clears throat> I'm every moment of every day like, when am I going to stop breathing? Like, is my next breath okay? Like, mm. am I going to eat mm. that and is it going to kill me? Yeah, my skin was always itching. It was a constant vigilance hmm. of this awareness of like everything's a threat, including my own body. Like I didn't feel safe here. So I didn't have this ability to, I mean, I was a kid. I played in sandboxes and did all the things and played in the woods and, you know, rode bikes and all the stuff. But at the same time, like it was all, there wasn't like the presence there. Hmm. There was this level of threat of like, oh, I can't go to the, like Vermont has a lot of cows and farms, a lot of hay. Hmm. So like a lot of my friends had farms. And so they'd always have like, hey, we're going to go play in the barn today. And I'm like, hmm. can't do it because yeah. it's literally like walking into a death trap for me. Yeah. And yeah. So that, <clears throat> that um, created this massive social anxiety in me that I wasn't aware of until later on. Hmm. And so, you know, it got to the point where like birthday parties were in barns or out in the field. Hmm. And I'm like, 
can't go. I, I told my mom, like, I, I felt fine, but I would tell my mom, like, tell them I'm sick. Like, I have a cold or something. I, mm. I, I don't want to go to the party because I was, first of all, so scared. Mm. Second of all, I felt so different from my friends. Yeah. Like, just there, there, was a, <clears throat> there was an actual, tangible, physical feeling of, like, I'm not that. And, like, they would be running around and breathing fine and eating all the cake and the nuts. Like, I couldn't mm. eat peanuts. And so, like, candy bars and all this stuff. And I'm like, Damn. I, 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 <clears throat> I feel like, you know, literally like the oddball out. How did yeah. you, uh, how did you, like, kind of, uh, as a kid looking back as mm-hmm. an adult now, like, what was that like as far as, like, um, how did you manage? What did you kind of lean into when you couldn't do these type of things? Yeah. What did you find yourself doing? Um, so, yeah, so I, I withdrew myself from the social stuff, a lot of it for the fear. And then also kids, like, would they look at me and, like, they'd, they'd feign, like, pretend to have an asthma attack. Oh, so you were bullied mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Mm. Um, like, through the hallways at school. And so, and, like, they would put, like, a nut in my face and be like. Yeah. And so, like, huh. and I didn't, at the time, it was, I was kind of laughing, too, like, ah, ha, ha. Yeah, like, I was looking back, it's like, well, that was probably had an effect on me. So withdrew from all the social stuff and like team sports. I love playing basketball and baseball, soccer. And like, you know, halfway through every game, it's like, I got to stop. I got to come off the field. And so I, hmm. and I had this, another story that I was a burden to everybody around me, including my family. Hmm. So, um, like financially, emotionally, um, you know, and it was that all eyes were always on me. So, I, so my sisters were, ended up being a little bit jealous of like all the attention I would get. So you get a little resentment from them a little bit, eh? Yeah. A little, yeah, and so the attention that I get from that, um, okay, a little sidebar here. Um, we'll get to that in a second. So what I found was tennis. <clears throat> it's an individual sport, and I and I found that I could do that instead of going to play or going to these parties. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I put tennis on this pedestal. I always say tennis was my first love. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was the thing that like saved me, and I fell in love with it. And then I I, I resisted it for a long time. I was like, no, oh, tennis, I'm not into it. And I picked up a racket and I was really, I had good eye hand coordination. So I was like, okay, like this is fun. This works. Yeah. And there's no I, grass and no fucking field. No, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And you get breaks like every 30 seconds because you run around, play a point and then yeah, you rest. Right. And so I switch sides. And also, like, there's no burden because there's no one else out there. Yeah. It's just me, you. Just yeah. me. And I love that. And so tennis took me all the way through college and I got a tennis scholarship. And then I, 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 I like to say I sniffed the pro tour. Like, I played a couple really low level pro tournaments. And at that point in my life, I had been to some other things, and I realized that the level of commitment that I would have had to embark on to be a professional tennis player was not really something I was interested in. Mm. And so, because <clears throat> there's no off-season. It's 24-7. Yeah, it's professional. Yeah, it's a, it's a high-level sport. It's a high-level sport. And so um, I got to that level, and I saw other guys that they, they were being successful, and like the way they were, it's like, ah, just, it's not it's me. It's a big step, yeah, right? I'm yeah, not, I'm not wired step. like that. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so it was. I kind of had to make a, make a decision. And I, uh, my senior year of college, my tennis coach, I made, I made a. It was a bit of a subconscious decision, and my tennis coach kind of pushed me. Because he's senior year, he's like, come to my office, and he's like, you're not interested in tennis anymore. Mm. He's like, you're burnt out. You've been playing tennis basically every day since you were seven, mm. and I'm now 23. <clears throat> and he's like, you know. But I love you, and I'm not taking away your scholarship. But you, the tennis team—you're not on the tennis team anymore. You're more inter- you're way more interested in socializing and being a social butterfly and all this stuff than you are in playing tennis. And in the back of my head, I was like, "Well, shocking." Mm-hmm. And also, he's right. Yeah. Did you find more of your social butterflyness later on in college? Were you able to kind of break yeah. out a little bit? And- yeah, I, f- I found a few things, yeah. <laughs> uh, including a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but that's so my freshman year. Uh, playing, I was playing basketball for my fraternity 
And I came down with a rebound and landed on my on one leg. And my the guy that was playing number two on the tennis team behind me, his knee hit my knee, and it, my knee buckled, and my ACL was gone. So that was the first time since I was seven years old that I wasn't playing tennis every day. Mm. And I had to take you know six or nine months off. And this was 1995, so the you know the surgery and stuff. It was a longer process. Mm. And so I, in that process, I you know I was, I was devastated. I would watch I would watch these kids go play tennis, or I'd watch you know, my friends playing tennis or do these things. And I'm like, I was crying almost every day. Like, your identity. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I got it back. I was able to get it back and I, I came back on the team for two more years. And in that process, I did find the social aspect of college, you know, so growing up in Vermont, um, part of the rejection I felt, you know, from other friends was also from women, from girls. Like mm. I didn't have a lot of success there. And I found that in college, mm. you know, as I got to college, it was, I got, I got a lot of attention and it was, like oh, there's something else out this here. Feels good. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. this is not, this is all right. Like this isn't like Vermont where I was, you know, felt where, like an out. What college did you go to again? It's called Belmont Abbey College. Okay, mm-hmm. Division Two School, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so um, after when I blew my knee out, um, the social scene kind of came in, mm-hmm. and a lot more drinking. And I was like, this is really fun. And mm-hmm. you know, as I and tennis came back, and I was like, and I st- I put tennis back on the priority list. And so if I had a match like on a Saturday, I wouldn't go out Friday night. It was that important. Would you say that the the drinking helped with your social anxiety? Oh my gosh! It was that it was, that, that was the that was that's like the the point, yeah. the entry point yeah. of it. That's actually very common. You know, I yeah. think a lot of people struggle with social anxiety. Of, am I enough? Of my you know, am I worthy? Mm-hmm. Am I lovable? Yeah. And the alcohol really does take an edge off it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it shuts, the, shuts down the monkey bit. brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. that's something that's very. And common. then towards the end, when I was like, okay, I could really, it'd be really good if I stopped drinking. The thing that kept me drinking was dating. Because you sit down at a date with a girl and it's like, what are we drinking tonight? And I, I in my heart was like, I'm not, I can't, I can't. And she'd be like, Captain and Ginger. And I'd be like, oh, all right, Captain on the rocks. Mm. <laughs> and then it's off to then it's like three or four days. And it, it just, it kept me in that cycle because I was so, I, I hadn't done any of the work yet. Yeah. I hadn't gotten to the bottom of any of this stuff from my childhood yet. I was still operating under that like, oh, I was just having a good time and I got out of control. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that, it's cool to, so you're... Your journey of going and reverting to the alcohol really started from your childhood with being in this fear state and being in this socially anxious state at all times. It came from that. Yes. And that's kind of it's interesting because I also dealt with asthma. I dealt with allergies Mm -hmm. and feeling different Mm -hmm. and feeling out of place, not being able to go to people's parties, not being able to go to things, always being the kid like hey, does that have peanuts in this? Yeah. Does this have milk in this? Like yeah. always feeling different and kids making fun of you. So what is, like I have questions about your, the the drinking, like how it really started because I know a little bit about your family history. Yeah. And like, was that the point where this kind of addiction started to happen? In, in the family or the- in, uh, in college when you were going into this point of yeah, I dating would, social- I would say definitely in college is when it first, like, I remember like the first time I got drunk in college, like I didn't do a lot of drinking in high school. I mean, one in Vermont, like you got to mm-hmm. drive around a lot. It wasn't there. The first time I had an opportunity to really drink in college, I blacked out and got drunk and I'm like, oh, wow, that was wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I had been drunk a couple times before and- um you know, I, again, tennis was too important, like, but it definitely wasn't a normal reaction to drinking. Um, and then, you know, over time they they would always be like, well, you, you know, my friends would be like, well, you, you were drunk last night. Like you were hammered. 
And like the, a little more hammered than the rest of us. Yeah, and it was I, the nineties too, though. Right? right. It's like yeah. everybody was drinking. Everyone's drinking, yeah. and we were, uh, the college I was on was like a really contained uh, campus, so it wasn't like we were out in the town or anything. Yeah. So it was all it's kind of safe, and yeah. everyone else was doing it. And if it wasn't me one night, it was another guy another night. Like it wasn't really out of the out of the realm of like the normal. Yeah, what we call that's normal. True. And so. Um, Fast forward to what you're talking about, how um, this intro to addiction was a lot of times you'll hear athletes talk about like, oh, the pain pills got me and it took me out of my sport or the drinking took me away from my sport. For me, when the tennis coach kicked me off the team, I felt this relief. You know, I can get to my life now. Mm -hmm. And in that moment that you you talk about like the identity, like I lost my identity there and I didn't recognize it. And so enter, like, I, I call it the rock star identity. Like, I immediately shifted into, like, I'm just going to be a fucking party animal. Yeah. And so when, I, when that space that tennis was taking up left, basically filling the void of that social anxiety, you know, mm-hmm. tennis was in place to be the Band-Aid on that bullet hole that was my shame and social anxiety. And that went away. Mm. And it's like, okay... So that shame monster is like, yeah, hey, what's hey I'm on? here. What's yeah. up? Yeah, yeah, what are you going to feed me now? Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I fed it alcohol. Mm. And that went on. So 23 to 38 was wow. just That's a, a fucking ride right there. Bro, I mean. That's a ride. Yeah, I had, there was, there was a lot of good times mm. um, and it ended up a lot of times not so good. Not so good. And the last, towards the end, it yeah. was eight nights in jail one time and my I had my dog with me for, the, I got a DUI and the dog was in the car with me. The dog went to the pound. Wow. I went to jail for eight nights. I got out and I'm like, okay, can we go get my dog? And then like, the dog's not there anymore. Someone my, got your dog. My girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, had come, flew him from California to North Carolina, got the dog and flew back to California with the dog. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my man. Okay, and this, so the... Addiction is something that runs in your family, correct? No. Oh, it's not. So, not really. Not okay. like. Not like. There's not a lot of strong like bloodlines of it. Uh, my dad's mm. dad was an alcoholic, rageaholic alcoholic. Um, I, I feel though that is more of a product of his environment. He was like you know World War One, like just that generation. Yeah. Mm. Um, my sister, my dad. So my dad has uh, me and my two sisters. Uh, my younger sister is from my mom. And so my older sister was um, my dad's daughter, but my mom unofficially adopted her. Mm. Um, she died of alcoholism. So there, it's there, but it's mm. not like I wasn't, it wasn't in my household. It wasn't an alcoholic household. Mm. So your childhood, was like you said, was pretty good. It was just more so the social anxiety. Side social anxiety and the internal battle of the fear and the shame. Yeah. Just because I can. Deep fucking yeah, shame. I can completely. Re- it's kind of funny because. I'm also Northeast. Uh-huh. Childhood looks completely fine. Yeah. Was there anything that like came up? So I kind of have this interesting perspective for like the allergies, the asthma and mm-hmm. those types of things. Yeah. Like kind of being passed down to us in a way, not necessarily like, oh, my mom has peanut allergies. So I right. get this, but like trauma yes. and emotions that have not been healed. Yes. So what do you feel like that is what? was passed on to you and that's yeah. why you reverted to alcohol so much i got chills when you're talking about that yeah because <laughs> it is um so one of the things that doctors would say is that they're, they're like when the the uh the genealogy the, the gene line has these things living in it and we and what i know now is it's epigenetics like we have these emotional wounds and these scars and the stories that we tell the the what i know also now is that like the quantum energy will choose one person and be like we're getting this out of the genealogy 
mm-hmm. aka the cycle breaker. And so like at, all my life, like it's been like, cause like, uh, you know, my, my mom's dad wasn't a great guy. My dad's dad wasn't a great guy. And so I'm here. Um, the only son of my parents to heal my, my grandfathers, my two, my two immediate grandfathers to heal their, their, their kind of, uh, misgivings. Mm-hmm. And that looks like a lot of, you know, asthma, allergies, eczema, a lot of auto, it's all autoimmune. Mm-hmm. And so me working and to purge all that stuff from this, from the lineage, like change the story, change the narrative about it. Absolutely. It came from emotional stuff. And wow. there's another thing. Um, when I was, my mom got pregnant with me, she didn't know she, she was basically living on a hippie commune in Vermont. Like it was 137 acres on the side of a mountain in Vermont, teepee, living in teepees. Mm. And then my mom got pregnant with me and she didn't know she was pregnant. She thought she had cancer. So she treated, like energetically, I was getting the download that like, oh, I'm cancer. Mm. Yeah. And so coming into this world, another thing that I've come to realize is that I had to create reasons to be paid attention because I felt rejection right there from the beginning. Yeah. So let me, let me create, yeah. yeah, let me create a lot of reasons that you have to pay attention to me. And so this asthma and this allergies were essentially like the struggle and that attention became my love language mm. because I noticed in real life, like in this human form, when I was having an asthma attack, like it's attention on Sam. When I'm not having an asthma attack, it's kind of like, oh, okay. You know, mm. and then like, obviously what we know is like, it's much better to be calm and not chaotic mm. and peaceful and healthy. Mm-hmm. And as a child, it felt like I was falling through the cracks when I was not struggling, when I was not having an asthma attack, not having an allergic reaction. Wow. Yeah. So these things were kind of a manifestation of wanting to be paid attention to right. and not feeling loved. But not feeling like cancer. Wow. That is crazy. How, like the, the evolution of these things and how they evolve yeah. in our physical bodies mm-hmm. on an emotional sense from generational trauma. Yes. It's and it's so wild. all been given to you. So what was like the, the 23 to 38? What was that like? Um, so it started off, uh, I was living in South Florida. Well, I was living in North Carolina, but I shortly moved to South Florida after I got married. I got married at 27. We moved to South Florida. So from t- like 23 to 28, it was really wild partying. And also I was able to hold a job. I, w- I was working for a bank. I was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of consequences. Mm. A couple of wild nights that were like, oh, that, that was a little bit crazy. Might want to apologize for a few things, but right. it was no, like it was at the end. So some 28 to 38 was, I mean, hanging out with porn stars in Miami, like hanging out in South Beach, going to like Super Bowl weekends and like what could be considered a pretty fucking good time. Mm, and yeah. also just completely off the wall partying, like just next level kind of shit. And a lot of cocaine, a lot of alcohol, like my favorite drug, whatever you put in front of me. Um, it, it was just, it was just wow, crazy. Whatever it is. Whatever, <laughs> what, favorite drug, what do you got? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's your favorite drink? More wine at the end of the night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it was just, I didn't have an off switch. And so over from 28 to 38, from 28 to 33 was kind of, the 28 was when the, 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 the downward slide kind of started to happen where like some consequences kind of started really showing started up. Out. Yeah. Mm. And then 28 to 33, I uh, got divorced, moved down to Miami from Fort Lauderdale, um, 
was doing commercial real estate brokerage, just making a ton of money, single in Miami and, um, the, everything, the party was increasing. The showing up at work was decreasing. Girlfriend was not happy with me at all. Parents were starting to question like everything. And then 33, I, it was 10 AM and I had lost my wallet and I, I was hungry. I I'd basically been up all night drinking. Mm-hmm. So I had a drink, called my girlfriend. I was like, hey, I need to go to my car. It's at the bar from the night before. Can you please take me to get my wallet? So I'm in the car, looking around, driving, driving down the road, Coral Gables, Florida, and looking at my wallet and just T-bone a car right through a red light. So this is my first, like, this is age 33, my first, like, wow moment, like, whoa, like, you need to really look at this stuff. Mm. And so I ended up in jail for 36 hours in Miami. They, they called the Dade County Hotel, not the greatest place. <laughs> mm. And then uh, right from there, basically went to rehab for 30 days. And in that moment that's the kind of the turning point where like everyone else now has permission to say like, you need to look at this. Mm. Cause before I was like, I had, I was still making money. Making I money. still had relationships like successful. Right. It was yeah. like, yeah, you're a partier, but you also hold it together mm-hmm. barely, but yes. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time it was like, you're not holding anything together. Mm-hmm. And so it got like the, after the rehab, I came back from rehab. Everyone was like, okay, like we're doing good. But inside I was like, I'm never, I'm not being sober forever. Like that's not the thing. I just needed a timeout. What was at this point, like obviously you were in this cycle, but like what was like the angst at this point? What was really kind of driving you to kind of go back to drinking, to the lifestyle? What is What was like that inner demon that you were still kind of messing it, with at this point? Yeah, I, I didn't really know, but I knew that I was really uncomfortable not drinking. Mm. And I knew that like drinking was something that my relationship was built on it. My Mm. friendships were built on Mm. it. Um, It's known. It's known real estate networking is built on it. Like there was a lot of things in my life. Like I don't understand how, like I might have a problem with drinking. It doesn't feel great. And I don't understand, like there's, I don't see a way for this not to be a part of my life going Mm. forward for whatever reason. And Mm. That's I'm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it was just in everything, which was like, Oh, that's just how it is. That's just, what life is about. Yeah. If I, so like, if I'm not doing it now we get, now I'm going to like, well, I'm not going to get, I'm going to get rejected again. It was your new identity. Was that what it felt like? Like when you weren't drinking, it felt like not normal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I wasn't the type to like every morning wake up and do shots of liquor. <laughs> it was more like on a Thursday or Friday night when I started, I was probably going to end up drinking until Monday or Tuesday straight mm, through wow. no mm. sleep yeah like a bender yeah just it was all it was a like a series of benders yeah and so this led to later that year so that was 2007 later that year any up, any inner dialogue though during this time like the inner so this after the girlfriend i started drinking again after that rehab and the girlfriend left and this is my this is when depression like really set in, in my yeah, life i was wondering like when that started kicking in like, yeah so the inner dialogue was um it's funny. I, I would make up everything. Like it's so much pressure on me. Like I have, I'm the only son of this family. Like I'm the only one that can carry on the family name. Like mm. it, you don't understand the pressure I deal with. Like mm. just real. Like I, as I say it out loud now, I'm like, what, what, I, I, <laughs> what was I thinking? But I would tell people these hey, stories. That's yeah. what we were fed though. Yeah. 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 And so the inner dialogue was that, um, I love, I love this socializing. I love it. And I want to do that. And I want to go to football games and I want to go on dates and those all are drinking. And so I had a therapist ask me one time, like, when you go to a football game, what are you going there for? Like the tailgate. So like the, the event for me 
was the drinking, not the football game. Mm. What do you when you go to see Dave Matthews Band or whatever? What's the what? What are you going there for? To get fucked up? Mm. So like the music doesn't matter. Like no, nah, not really at all. Wow. And so I had to like shift this perspective of like, you know, my whole existence was built on drinking events. Wild. Did that did that actually help with the shift when he asked you these uh, yeah. awareness questions essentially? One hundred percent. So this mm. was this kind of like at that moment would you say that's when awareness started kind of happening? Yeah, like and it, it was. It was like, well, that and I and again, I was. I, I was like, eh, it's not really a problem with that. But I was also like, wow, like I'm really kind of missing the point here. Yeah. And so, um, again, the 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 idea of me stopping drinking didn't kick in until 2010. So this is three years later. Mm. And so for the next three, from 2007, I went back to rehab in the fall, and uh, in Utah, and came back to Miami, went on a date right around my birthday she asked me what I was drinking and I just said, uh, rum and Coke. They didn't even think about it. And that led to two more years of just shit show. Wow. And then, I, yeah, then I left Miami, went back to North Carolina. And when I was in North Carolina, in 2009, I got cancer in my mouth for the first time, um, oral cancer. And that I've never smoked or anything. And so the doctors were like, well, why? Like, we don't know why it's there. You know, it, it, it just could be that something in your body and looking back now, I know, that was emotion. It was shame. Mm -hmm. It was like emotional, just wreckage all throughout my body. And it manifested itself in cancer, which I was told I was from the second mm -hmm. I was born. So sure, it's, wow. of course, like this is the, mm. uh, and, and there's, you know, I had a handle on allergies and asthma now and I, you know, the drinking thing. And so like a little bit of a, like, Oh, I have cancer. Like feel bad for me. Like I'm not an alcoholic. I just have cancer. Like, I mean, anything I could do to Get that attention. Get that yeah. attention. Yeah. yeah. Attention. Like create, and, and not so much because the drinking now is becoming a problem for other people. Mm. And so like I had to create some sort of sympathy for me. Ah. I, I got to the point where when I would drink, like I'd go on like a three or four or five day bender and I knew there was phone calls coming in afterwards. I would actually mm. eat um, a half of a bean burrito from Taco Bell because I knew that it wouldn't give me a full anaphylactic reaction. Enough of a reaction though that like my throat would get a little red and the hospital would have to like to check me in for 24 hours so I could create sympathy on the back end of my destruction. Pretty brilliant. We'll be right back to the show, but first I wanted to ask you a question. What does community mean to you? As you probably know, you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And this can either elevate your life to unmeasurable levels or depending on your core five, perhaps even drag you down. At Nirvana Mind and Body, we know that the people who listen to this podcast and engage with our content are the ones that aren't trying to live a low level existence. You're somebody who's looking to get the most out of life, achieve your highest potential, forge a deeper connection and relationship with yourself and the loved ones around you, release the mental anchors that are holding you back from thriving, and continue to grow as a person within a community of like-minded individuals. Knowing this, we've taken the time to curate a community exactly of the people that you're looking to surround yourself with in Nirvana Nation. Nirvana Nation is an exclusive community membership that gives you access to live Q&As each month from our mentors, two live virtual breathwork sessions, discounts on our digital products, and access to our private community of individuals that are communicating every day on how to make each day their best day. How often are your friends asking questions like the one that was just asked in the group this morning where somebody asked, what are some of the things that you guys do to replace old habits and create new neural pathways? Or for example, another one from a girl yesterday who posted a coffee product that came from a regenerative farm. So from posts like this to even the book club, these are just some of the things that are waiting for you in our health focused community. 
So come join Nirvana Nation today for only $18 a month and begin taking the first steps to see what it's like to truly live a limitless life. So check out the link in the podcast notes. And now let's get back to the show. And the hospital would have to like to check me in for 24 hours. And so I could create sympathy on the back end of my destruction. Pretty brilliant. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Pretty brilliant, yeah. actually. It worked at the time. Yeah, right. And I would like scratch my yeah. throat to make it look all right. I'd go oh, in the ER and be like, man. I'm having a reaction. Yes. They're like, cool, intravenous Benadryl. All right. Mm. So yeah, I fall asleep for 24 hours and come out. and everyone's hydrated. Like, yeah. Everyone's like, you shit. okay? Yeah, I just wow. ate a, had a brie burrito, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, come here. We'll take care of you. You need breakfast? I yeah, got you. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, the alcoholic addiction mind is brilliant. Yeah. Like, so manipulative. Yeah, you're creating all these stories. Yeah. Yeah, the ego's strong with alcohol. It's a, it's a, yeah, that's a wild thing. Yeah. Um, I don't think if you, if you're not a drinker, it's hard for people to possibly uh, maybe comprehend. It takes over. It it goes up to the top of the, um, the human need scale. Mm. So like when, when an alcoholic, when the disease kicks in, in the mind, when you have that drink or that drug, that becomes the most important thing. Like if you don't get that, you won't survive. It can be more important than food, sleep, water, sex. It just yeah. bumps to the top. There's a, I forget the name of the um, pyramid, but it, it goes to the top. And that withdrawal is super real in the morning when you wake up, I imagine. Oh, you can't get hungover. You don't stop drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? So like I, that was, I would go to the point where like I physically couldn't get the thing to my mouth anymore and just fall asleep and pass out and wake up shaking and Hurting. sweating and just, you know, in the mind, like mm. feeling guilt in this basically piles and piles and layers of shame on shame on shame. What was the breaking point? <laughs> so uh, there's one thing I, I want to tell first before I get there. So okay, in 2009, okay. I went back to North Carolina. Um, there was a football game, a Panthers football game, and we started tailgating at 9 a.m. 6 p.m. rolls around and like, you know, oh, game's damn. over. Yeah. <laughs> so long time. <laughs> yeah. And Trooper. so 6 p.m. rolls around, uh, game's over. We're at all at a bar um, in downtown and it's on two stories. And I walk out of the bar and fall off the balcony, 35 feet. Land on the pavement below. Wake oh, up. Man. The last thing I remember is being at the bar and like vaguely remember kind of walking out on the balcony. And then the next thing I know, um, I'm in the trauma unit of the local hospital with my arm in a brace, uh, catheter, my neck in a sling, like just totally like immobilized. 35 feet. Yeah. Wow. Damn. And so what I found out later um, through ayahuasca was that was a suicide attempt because mm. all that shame that I was carrying for my entire life, all the guilt and the hopelessness that I was in from like, this is now 2009. Um, I've you know, been drinking for, I mean, it's been 13 years. This almost, was, right? yeah, this is about 13 years and of, of like just completely like not showing up and like being told I'm a fuck up and all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. in that moment, subconsciously I'm like, I'm done yeah, and just junked. Wow. Yeah. And so then the breaking point came, um, there was two actually, there was like a, a, a initial breaking point in 2011, went on a week long bender, went to a native American and I was doing native American sweat lodges at the time. Hmm. And after this bender, I, I woke up on a Sunday and I'm like, I just need to, I need to go to a sweat lodge. I don't know what brought me there, but I just went. Oh, so you weren't doing sweat lodges before I was doing. So this around 2010, um, is when I started like, okay, I really should probably make an effort here to get sober because this is proving to be a really big problem in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I, this is when I did the gratitude training and this is when I got into Hinduism and I, it was kind of the awakening period of my life. What got you into that? What was the inspiration? Like who even introduced to it? Like how'd that happen? A girlfriend at the time. 
she was okay. uh, yeah, she was Saving the first, first witch I dated. <laughs> nice. And at the time I was she she was one of those ones that like Drea, you know Drea. Mm -hmm. Like she was like Drea, like had this like intuitive thing like she would look at me and be like you're not doing something. Like you're something's going wrong, like talk mm -hmm. to me and I'm like, "Oh no, no. I'm good." Meanwhile, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, half in the bag cuz I had some liquor on the way home and I wasn't really there yet with the intuitiveness of it yeah, all. Yeah. But she introduced me to like Muji and Hinduism and this gratitude training and um, like different scriptures and texts and all this stuff. And it was my first, I was like, wow, this feels really good. And so I got into it. And part of that was Native American sweat lodges. Mm -hmm. And okay. so uh, at the end of this week, of, and in this week I broke up with her and just went off. And I, I was living on Captain Morgan's and quadruple Baconators from Wendy's for a week. <laughs> The quad quadruple. I go in the morning, I get a handle of rum and like five those. of those things and just like hunker down and drink and eat burgers. Oh my God. Did you awful. say you used to also be overweight? Yeah. So you, you overweight this, at this time? This, 230 pounds. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I was it's like a, wondering, I'm like, man, you could be pretty good for putting down five of those, but I remember you mentioned. I still could. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would not feel great afterward. Right. Yeah. Maybe that amount in tacos. Now, yeah. But it's, totally. it's just a little bit yeah, different. Totally. 100%. So uh, I went to the sweat lodge and I had uh, what, is what I know now to be a spiritual awakening where like in that sweat lodge, everything became clear, everything from the pain that I was causing other people and myself to what I'm missing out on and what I'm possibly jeopardizing in my future. Mm. And in that moment, I came out of sweat lodge and I, I thought to myself, I'm like, this is kind of freaky. Like, and for, usually I would be like, I got to call up my girlfriend and be like, I need her back and call my parents and apologize. And this time I was like, no, this is too big. I need to sleep on this. If I still feel this way tomorrow, I'll take action. And I woke mm. up and I was like even more motivated. Mm. So I call, interesting. Yeah, I yeah. called up a buddy of mine who was in AA and I said, I need to go through the steps like now, this week. Mm. And so he just rapidly took me through the steps and I stayed sober for about a year. And then another football game. I was in North Carolina again. Those fucking football games, bro. <laughs> Man. <laughs> suck you right in. Track suck you right in. Tailgates. <laughs> I'm like, I'm fucking there. Yeah. yeah. So I had a buddy from high school in town and he, we went out and pre-gamed it. And I was like, I, I was, my, my conversation at the time was I'm going to make it a year of not drinking and then I'm going to reevaluate. And this was 11 months and two weeks. So I had two weeks to go. Mm. And he, uh, he, he sits down at the table and I sit down at the table and I'm like, I'm good. I can make it. He's like, you want a beer? Yes. Right then, like not even thinking about wow. it. Yeah. Did he know? Did he know like your he history? He knew nothing about my history. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. that, you need a new friend. Yeah, that. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, that was good. part of the You're deal good. was that like he doesn't know anything. All so right, I can like right. get away with this. And I was like immediately in my head and like ah, 11 and a half months, close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within three weeks, I was back to doing the cocaine, alcohol, staying mm. up for four or five days at a time. Did the shame come with it though? Like when you were going at night, did that, mm. was it as heavy as before or was it kind of like not really there yet because you just did a year? So I wasn't really aware of the shame until probably three years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Um, like, and, but it, that's just why it was so, pr like it kept happening because I was just unaware of it. Yeah, that and, is wild. Yeah. And so, mm. but I knew like depression kicked in and, like, and the whole thing about the withdrawals. And mm. so for the next two months, I was just on a two month long bender. If I wasn't, if I wasn't sleeping, I was doing cocaine and, and drinking alcohol, driving around, like just being a complete wreck. And this is when I spent eight nights in jail. I, I was driving from Charlotte to Asheville to go see my dad. He was living in Asheville at the time. And I had been up all night and it was like 6 a.m. And I'm like, okay, gas station's open at seven. I'm going to go get four locos and a 12 pack for the ride. And I'll leave and go up there at 7 a.m. 
So I do that. I'm drinking four loco on the way up to Asheville through the mountains, North Carolina. And all of a sudden I hadn't slept yet and still been drinking for, you know, 36 hours. And the road starts to come to front of my car, like directly in front of my car. Like I can't see the road. So I'm like, I better pull over. And I pull off the highway and onto this little side road in like nowhere, North Carolina. And I'm sitting there, keys are out of the car. I'm eating some chips and like the cops knock on my window. I'm like, oh, like totally not there. Mm. And they kind of bring me back. I'm like, oh. So they step out of the car, like, step out of the car, sir. I immediately tell them, I'm like, I'm not going to pass any field sobriety tests. Like, and they were like, okay. Took me to jail, stayed eight nights. Apparently, I had gotten off the highway and come within inches of head on collision at like 50 miles an hour with a truck. Damn. Wow. Yeah. And so that guy called up the police and was like, there's this driver on whatever rural route, whatever. Um, He almost ran me off the road, head on collision. Like, someone needs to go. Get him. Um, get him, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, and that was when I spent eight nights at my dad's, like, you're staying in jail for a week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was trying to get out, like, trying to bail out. And he was like, no. How was the reflection when you were sitting in jail? What was that like? That was the <clears throat> that was the moment of feeling the most trapped physically I've ever felt in my entire you life. You probably went through withdrawals there too, right? Yeah. 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 And, the, and my bunkmate, my cellmate was a snorer like I've never heard. So I would sleep all day and be up reading books all night. And he would, cause he was, I couldn't sleep at night. Mm. And so I remember at one point just like grabbing onto the bars and just like uncontrollably shaking the bars, like thinking I could like knowing I couldn't move them, but thinking I could this feeling in my body of like, this is fucking awful. I've been in here for five days. My dog's over there in the pound mm. who knows what my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend's doing. My dad won't get me out. Like it was just the most profound helplessness and just low rock bottom that I've ever experienced. And at what age was this? This was 38. So this was 10 years ago. Yeah, a little over 10 years ago. And so I didn't stop drinking then. Actually, my dad came and got me out of jail. My sister had come down. and It was around, it was in October. And um, I went went to his house in North Carolina, and I was up in my bed. He had a bedroom up in the upstairs. Put my bag in the closet, and there was three bottles of tequila right there. Damn. I cracked one open and just started oh, chugging it. Man. Yeah. And I was like, ah. Oh. It had that man, bodies are amazing of a grip on you. Yeah. Like, I had just been in jail for eight days because of mm. alcohol. And then and I go to my dad's house, who's, like, not happy with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my sister's there, who's not happy with me. And I'm, I am like see this Mexican tequila, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is my relief. Wow. What was that? I'm trying to even understand that type of feeling where you see a bottle and you know what just happened, and you're like, "I gotta fucking have that." Like, it's like part of it wild. was like part of it was that uh, I deserve it. Like, I was kind of angry that he left me there in jail for ah. eight days. Part of it was that that's my like I feel terrible right now mm. on an emotional level. And that was, that's the relief. That's the voices get quieted down. And I go downstairs and I'm, you know, happy because I'm drunk. drunk yeah. <laughs> and my sister's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, nothing. And then they smell on my breath. And my dad takes me to the emergency room. He's like, I don't know where to take you, but you cannot be in my house. I'm taking the emergency room. So he drops me, literally drops me off the emergency room. And they, they make me sit in the lobby for the next six hours. Wow. That's miserable. So like your mind was creating these stories like a narratives that you just kept falling into yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. So 
that was at 38. You said that this is when the... So this that, that was halfway through this two-month bender. So I kept drinking. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> kept drinking. I got, went to the hospital a couple nights for the next month. Um, my drug dealer broke into my house one time. Uh, stole my brand new 65 inch TV. My neighbors called me up. I was at my dad's. They called me up and they're like, your, your front door is like blasted wide open. Like someone just took a hammer to it. So I had my buddy go over the house and he's like, yeah. And my drug dealer told me later, he's like, yeah, we went in with guns. Like we were there to collect on some drugs, some money. And I was like, and I wasn't there. And I'm like, I mean, if I had been there, who knows? And so a month later, November 21st, 2012, I was 4 a.m., I was sitting there at my kitchen table. My drug dealer just left. A couple of friends, who I, my friends, had just left. And I was by myself, pile of cocaine, bottle of Jägermeister, bottle of rum, like ready to just fucking keep going. And all of a sudden, this wave of awareness and fear came over me. And I started shaking like this. I was like, I don't know what to do. I was supposed to move out of my house in four hours. This was 4 a.m. I was supposed to move out. And at 8 a.m., the movers were coming. I hadn't packed up a single thing. Had no money left because I'd blown it all on drugs and alcohol. And so part of, I was like, I, I can't, like this coming day is not, I can't do it. And in that moment also, I saw my dad's face, like death warmed over. My, I saw the pain of my mom. I saw my mom crying. I saw my sisters begging me to stop. And I saw all this, I felt physically like, like the weight of everything was in my cells now. It was like, uh, yeah, I, I, I can still feel it right now. It's like nausea and like heaviness and just like, like you ever laid around for like three days because you're sick and your body just like, eh, like yeah. that's what it felt like. Achy and, and shit. Yeah, yeah, achy and like every movement is like, oh, the tendons are like, mm. eh, yeah. So I called 911 and I was like, uh, I'm having suicidal thoughts and I wasn't, but I knew if I said I'm drunk and I'm, high and I'm scared uh, and I need to I need you guys to take me in they'd be like just go to sleep and I was like we can't have that I need I need to be taken away so this is kind of like the nuts like the beans mm-hmm. in a way I knew that like what I was about to face was going to be impossible and all the 15 previous years had just shown up at my my doorstep mm. and we're like time to answer and you got to answer all this shit right now so I went to psych ward for seven days literally got in a van from the hospital got on a plane, went to a rehab in Michigan, went to another rehab, got on a plane from there, went to a rehab in Utah, stayed in Utah for three more months, did sober living, and then ended up in San Francisco in 2014 and started being a personal trainer. Wow. story. Yeah. Holy And that's what, that's what led me to like what I do now. So the past 10, so nine years. Yeah, so it's funny at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Who is Sam?" Obviously, this isn't who Sam is now. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. but this is the beautiful story it, yeah. of Sam. I never knew all this. Like knowing you, yeah, uh, well, I never knew the whole story of how you got to that point. Yeah. Wow. Well, well let's uh, let's keep this going because I want to see. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want people yeah. to know who Sam is now. Yeah. And, yeah. and the beautiful work that yeah, you like, do. Yeah. Like, how have you? Let's keep you've it going. Lived this crazy story. Yeah um beautiful story like how did you be so now you're a personal trainer in san francisco Mm -hmm. how have you gone from personal trainer to san francisco to now who sam is today the short answer for the first time uh, second time in my life the first time was when i started playing tennis the second time in my life i allowed myself to be a beginner I didn't try to explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So with real estate, for example, like when I got into real estate in Miami in 2004, 
the market was like insane. Like you basically show up into work and there's a check for 25 grand on your desk. Like, well, cool. They want this property. And that happened all the time. And then 2007, the market crashes 2008. And it's like, oh wait, I have to actually like be a real estate broker now. Like I have to make calls. Like this is terrible. And I, and I, and I wanted to be number one. I wanted to know everything right off the bat. I never gave myself a chance to learn the skills that it took to be a good real estate broker. So the career Philip, I mean, there was a lot of drinking at the time too, but the didn't have the skills to support any of it. So when I moved to San Francisco, I literally had no, no address. I had no license. I had no car. I had no people really in my life. Friends and AAME, no girlfriend. I was alone. My sister lived in San Francisco, but I was alone and I had this opportunity to like start over completely. Mm. And is I tried an actual thought. Like here's this opportunity. Like the, what, what, what part, what, what is this when like inner dialogue kind of really started kicking in more? Yes. Uh, I would say the, the awareness, like once I, once I had committed to getting sober uh, or stopping, like again, like now I don't even have that conversation anymore, but at the time that's what it was. You know, I, I went to AA meetings instead of bars and I, I, I dove into the gym and I, and I knew that like this was, I had no, I had no choice. Mm. Like it didn't have anything to like before it would be like, Oh, you get out of rehab and you know, and parents pay rent for a couple months or girlfriend comes back. Like you, you, the pattern is with alcoholics is that you go to, you take care of your shit. You stop drinking. You get a lot of things back. Usually people start drinking again. Things go away. You get it back this time. Nothing came back. Mm. And so I, yeah, inner dialogue. Yes. But also just like, I don't have a choice. All right. And so one of the things that I did was like, I get to learn how to go on dates sober. I get to learn how to go watch Michigan football sober. I get to, I get to learn how to do all these things. And drinking is not an option. And it, was, and it wasn't even that I, I didn't even want to drink. That's one thing I'm really lucky about is that once I put down the bottle, I have never, not for one second thought, I want to have a drink right now. Like it's never been a thought since I was so done. What was that like? The so done conversation? Like, you know, it was obviously you said in that house before four days of moving out. Was that that time? Was that the so done? Yeah, that was it. That was the end. From feeling that from your, from like, the visions I, of your dad and your mom. Like, yeah, all, seeing all that and the pain, like feeling that pain, it was just, I was done. Like, and I've never once had the thought, like I never had a craving, never had a desire, anything since. That's amazing. Yeah. It's incredibly amazing. It was yeah. like this bigger force. It was or like source. a universal force yeah. that just came like a, down yeah. and was like, this is, you're done. Yeah. Tap me on the head with a wand, magical wand. Like, it's <laughs> over, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like you cannot go on like this. And so I went to San Francisco and I just said, I'm just going to learn how to do the, I'm learn. I'm going to learn how to live again. I'm going to learn how to live this way now. Hmm. And hmm. so I allowed myself to be a beginner. And that meant like going and like taking the personal training NASM and, and going to the Equinox and walking in and being like, you guys hiring trainers and like, yes. And so allowing myself to like not expect mastery from myself right off the bat, which for tennis, that reason I say second time, tennis was unconscious. Like I was eight or seven when I yeah. picked it up. I just, I, and I was quite good from the, from the get. And so other things I had tried, I kind of expected to be really good at things from the get and other things I had tried just wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And this time I was like, okay, like fall back and do work. Mm. And I did. That's powerful. And so for the, yeah, so for the next four years I was a personal trainer. And then um, the depression, uh, the, that's why I knew it was social anxiety. That's what I had landed on was like, this is why I drink. Cause I, I'm so uncomfortable in social situations 
And by committing to doing that, to learning how to do that, like I would meet friends and go out to places I like to go to and not drink and just, it's like going to the gym. Like you add five pounds a day and five pounds a week and you just build up. And I did that. This was a conscious thing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. How, yeah. Did you have this did it happen organically? Did someone suggest this? Did you read this? How to it's knowing. Kind of start implementing? It's, it, was a, it was a knowing. Mm. Yeah, it was just like I, I had kind of gotten to the point where I know what I like to do. Like I love to go watch football. I love to go to concerts, festivals. Like I like to do these things that, quote unquote, normally would, would be a drinking event. How were those moments? Were they like, damn, I actually fucking remember the game or like, yeah, hey, like that's, I actually that's a big or, one. Yeah. Or maybe like, I don't really care for football. Like, yeah. what was that like? Yeah. yeah. So what, the first thing you recognize is that standing up for eight hours at a concert or a bar, your legs get really tired. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not realize that for 15 years before that. Wow. wow. And so like, you know, by the, by staying out till 4 a.m., I'm like, no, like 11 or 12 rolls around. My, I'm like, I can't. I'm going to bed. Yeah. I can't stand up anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, the second thing was is that um, you can kind of tap into the energy of it and mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. not have to drink. And another thing too is like a lot of times people worry like yeah, I'm going to tell them I'm going to tell people I don't drink and they're going to think I'm weird. Mm. That is on 100 percent because you would think that about somebody else if if that you found out they didn't drink. It has nothing to do with how they view you. That's true. So there's you have to there's a level of ownership or embodiment that you have to take with it. Like do you, you want to drink? No thanks. Don't have to say I don't drink. Just like that, no that will yeah. cause the questions to come in. It's like, no thanks, I'm good. And then they're just like, oh, okay, whatever. So yeah, you realize yeah, yeah. you realize pretty quickly that people don't really give as much a shit about you as you thought. Like at the bar, anyways. Like they're not really worried about who's that weirdo in the corner not drinking. Like after a few drinks of their own, they're just they're off in their own world. Did, did you yeah. have some uh, inner inner dialogue uh, when, at these social settings when anxiety would start to kick in, when these intrusive thoughts, did you have some inner dialogue and did you talk it back? Um, how did you manage it? Yeah, so um, there was still like those moments of like, you know, I me- uh, so I remember one moment in North Carolina when I was still drinking, I walked into a bar, I was, I was sober and I walked in and I looked around at all my you know friends and local bar that I always went to and I'm like, I, my first thought was like, fuck, I'm not this cool. Like these people like me and think I'm cool, but my first thought was like, this is all a fucking act. And so I had a few of those moments walking into these bars or these events in San Francisco. And I would be like, you know what? Do it anyway. Just go. Just do it. Like sit with it, be with it, play it through, play the tape forward, do whatever you got to do. And you know what? Stay for an hour or two hours. And uh, if if you're still feeling that way, you get to go home. And that's one thing that, a lot of times for me, drinking felt like freedom. Like if uh, it, what it was is that it took all responsibility away. So yeah. I'd be like, oh, if I had to do things, I'd be like, I'm going to go get drunk. That way, all things I have to do, I can't do them because I'm drunk. And I was like, that's freedom. Hmm. And in reality, not like once you start drinking, it's actually prison because now you can't drive. You really don't have any control over what you're doing. For me, um, you know, you're, you're uh, relying on cabs or whatever. So not drinking and going out you have all the choice in the world. Yeah. Like you can leave when you want, you can talk to whoever you want. Like you're, you know, it opens up so many you're things. Free. You're yeah. Free. You're mm-hmm. free. Yeah. And so that was one thing I kind of anchored into was that like, I don't have to like, if, if a line's too long to get in before it'd be like, I got to get in there to get a drink. Now it's like, I don't really feel like waiting that line. Yeah. I'm going to go over here. Or, yeah. Over your life. You weren't controlled by a yeah. substance anymore. And so what was happening was, is that I was building an identity and a life that I was actually really proud of, you know? Uh, so I was getting like the further away you get from a drink, the more like 
you know, 30 days is like, oh, I can get 30 days and no problem. But like at 90 or 120 days is when the brain starts to repair itself. And so you start to have pride in what you're creating, like the body you're creating, the mind you're creating. When you realize that like the thoughts get quieter and like all these things you're doing, relationships are better. And for me, a lot of it too was San Francisco. Nobody knew me except my sister. And so for the first time, like I would tell people these stories and they're just going to be like, no fucking way. Like I don't, there's no way that you, the person Sam that I know could even come close to doing that. Mm. And so that's, that's very rewarding to hear. Like it mean, it's like, you know, talk about like inside game. Yes. And there's the external feedback loop and it's good to hear like that these people don't even understand like this version of me that everybody else in my life knows <laughs> and maybe some can't let go of. Mm. And so, um, yeah, just dropping in and doing work and like reading and, a lot of the first six years of it was AA, um, just doing the steps and like making the amends and getting in men's groups and talking about your shit with people and talking about your shit with other men and doing that. And then um, at about six years, I was like, this is not really work. It's not, it's not that it's not working for me anymore. It's kind of plateaued out, maybe mm. even declined a little bit. Mm. And now we're talking about identity. Like I'm talking like every morning you go into a meeting, I am Sam, hey, I'm Sam, I'm an alcoholic. Mm. Okay, I see, I see how that serves a lot of people and I have no problem with AA or the people that are in it. I have a lot of really, really good friends that are in it. For me, that felt very uh, defeating. Yeah, you no longer yeah, identified I, I, with yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah and, I was like, and I just felt like I'd gotten to a point where like, I'm solid. Like I just moved to Austin. I, um, I don't really even re resonate really with the term alcoholic anymore. I feel like that's been healed. Um, and so they, they have a big conversation a, like, are you recovering or are you recovered? Hmm. And I felt like I'm, I'm recovered. And you say that in a meeting and they're like, well, wait, like you're supposed to be always be recovering. Mm. I'm like, okay. But like the other side of that conversation is that I, that means I'm always broken. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's a very valid point. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with the assessment with that. Yeah. And so yeah. over the, the, over these, this so four years after getting sober, uh, I was in San Francisco and the depression kicked in and I'm like, that's gotta be the weather in San Francisco. This is what's fucking me up. So I moved to Denver cause I did research the sunniest, sunniest city in America is Denver, like 330 days of sun every year. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like going from San Francisco, like the grayest city mm. and maybe Seattle, but into Denver. I get to Denver and I'm a personal trainer in San Francisco and like the, the rates that you can charge per hour in San Francisco are ridiculous, like two fifty an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Denver and be a private personal trainer and make that much money. And also cost of living is going to be way lower. So I'm going to profit margin is going to be amazing. Get to Denver and personal training is barely even a thing because yeah. of all the sun. Everyone's outside hiking, snowboarding, skiing, biking. Oh, and I, wow. it's like max you can get an hour is like 65 bucks. <laughs> And the cost of living does not support that. And then also the girlfriend that we had talked about working it out, she ended up cheating on me and hooking up another, meeting another guy. And so now I'm like still depressed in Denver, sunny. In sunny state. <laughs> yeah, but I'm depressed and I'm alone. And so I, I hightailed back to California. Tried to re, I kind of rebuilt my personal training career. But again, as I was doing that, it's like even the personal training feels a little bit limiting to me. You know, I, I, I felt like I need to impact on a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started doing men's work and, and working with people on mindset. And uh, first it was addiction coaching. So if a guy had just gotten out of rehab 30 days, 60 days, and he needed to like that recalibration for life, I would walk him through the next 90 days. That moved into uh, mental health coaching. So helping mm -hmm. guys with depression walk out of that. 
to be honest, that's that's a he- that's some heavy heavy work. Yeah. Um, true not, service, true service. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And so that just evolved into like, well, okay, you know, guys, these guys need help. And there's also a way to avoid getting there. And then in 2018, my sister passed away from alcoholism. And so I want, I fo- refocused and said, that's, and that's the end game that we're playing with here is that, and you, you get into de- depression, anxiety leads to addiction, death. And I, I paid every single fucking consequence except that. And my sister paid none of the other ones, no jail, no rehabs, because she suffered in silence and she died. Damn. And so I'm, I say to myself now, like, you know, you see men that are struggling or you see people that are struggling with traumas, with relationships, whatever else, and it doesn't have to get that far. And so stepping into like all the things that I've learned. And so that depression was shame. The, and then um, victimhood, shame and victimhood. Like everything was really great in my life, making a lot of money, driving a sweet truck, hot girlfriend, cool city. Uh-oh, no reason to be saved. Like no reason for attention. No, re- Like that little child again, that little yeah, kid yeah, yeah. that was like, mm-hmm. notice. And so I was like, let me just create some shit so that I can get some attention and be saved and be a victim. Because mm-hmm. that's how I learned that I get attention mm-hmm. and love. And so that took, honestly, 2017 took four, four good years to recover from. Wow. Uh, just like of going through that and working through that. And then 2019, the girlfriend, we broke up again. She cheated again. And I tell you, like, she, it's all her. Like, it was definitely not all her. <laughs> I was not, I had my role in it for sure. Mm. And, uh, but that was the thing that opened my eyes. Like 2019, the greatest quote I ever heard, if it broke your heart and it opened your eyes, take that win. Mm. yeah that's good and that's that's what happened in 2019 and that 2019 is when i left aa got into plant medicine got into consciousness got into like super duper like deep spirituality and uh, i've grown more in, since 2019 than i have in the previous eight years combined mm. hmm. epic oh man <laughs> yeah. so one, awesome. one more i want to the the last kind of like uh hurdle to go over was uh last year i got diagnosed with cancer again Mm. and um you know ton of healing like i looked at shame for two years i looked at like the depression's long gone the anxiety's long gone uh but the shame and the victimhood's still there and i didn't it was i'd done so much work on it that it was a point where it was a whisper and this whisper became a fucking scream uh, last year so november 1st i went to burning man and the spot that I had cancer in 2009 in my mouth flared up big time. And the doctors had told me, unless something happens like that, you're in the clear, like no need to come back. So that happened. I went back to the doctors and they, two doctors looked at it and they were like, yes, that's cancer. We need to get a biopsy done and determine what stage it is and the treatment plan. And so I immediately think to myself like, okay, well, I know your treatment plan and it's not going to be mine. I'm going to go down the road of plant medicine and Joe Dispenza meditations and healing the emotions and the energy around this because I know it's, it doesn't feel physical to me. And so in that moment when they told me I had cancer, I felt that little kid that was a victim that I had done so much healing on throwing a party, like cheering. Like, oh, wow. Yes. Like, we get to be a victim again. Woo! Life is so great. Like, we need this. He's like, Sam, we need this. We need this to be important. We need this to be we worthy. Need, we need this to be worthy. We need this yeah. to like Im- for our purpose. Like we need this to like I can get on stage and talk about having cancer now and like Damn. this is what wow. we need. And then so I go I so I'm like kind of like, yeah, I think you're right. 
<laughs> so, so anyway, so I get on this healing path of like deep meditations and really looking at like Luis Hay stuff with like epigenetics and the emotional side of all of it. Cause I know that's what it is. Go to Costa Rica, uh, I serve, serve Bufo and, and drink ayahuasca three times on the Friday night. I go, I, I take the most ayahuasca I've ever taken four cups. And the last three hours of that ceremony were the, probably the most miserable four hours of my life. Like it was a complete fucking hell for like 45 minutes with like five minutes of divine healing downloads and then back into the hell. And it was showing me every version of me that still cultivated and held onto that victim consciousness and that shame, like addiction versions of me, little kid in the hallway getting picked on versions of me, kid on the basketball court, like having to stop halfway through and, you know, get on his hands and knees, all of them. And the next morning I woke up in that spot was like half the size. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, I'm going to keep that to myself. And then, so when I got, (laughs) when I got back to Austin, I got the biopsy on the 13th of December and they called, that was a Tuesday. They called me on Friday and they said, yeah, the cancer's gone. Fuck yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It's incredible. Thank you. (laughs) And that same little kid that was throwing a party got sad. I had to grieve. Like I, Dre was like, why don't you just like super joyful right now? And I'm like, I was sad. I'm like, cause we, cause I needed to have cancer. Like I needed, I was so in the, that victim was still so big that I was like, I, I need this. Like I need to be a victim in order to be worthy in order, I need to struggle in order to have value. And so I had to go through like a, like a week long period of grieving that little kid that was like so attached to being a victim and being, and holding on to that shame that it was, uh, it was, that was like, it was like a seven week ceremony. How'd you go mm-hmm. about um, you want to run through that, that grieving process. Cause I think yeah. that's something that, that many people don't talk about is holding space for that inner child mm-hmm. that really needs to feel their emotions to go yeah. through the grieving process, mm-hmm. that deep healing. How did you go about that? Lots mm-hmm. of attention, uh, attention, loving on, attention, loving attention on there, there's that one. So that I told you about that little, that little league incident where I mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. my lungs stopped working on the league field. That kid woke up in a tent in the hospital the next morning, like a tent the size of this room, like, E.T. style, scared out of his mind. And so he came up a lot. And I, like in morning and meditation, I would say, okay, which version, which version gets to come forward today? Mm-hmm. Which, which version of me? Which little kid version of me? And I would end up in that hospital room and I would take that kid by his hand and, wa- and walk him out of the hospital room and just say, hey, we're going out here and we're going to live now without this. Like, we don't need this anymore. And so every time I would just, I would tap into these versions of me just grab the kid by the hand, walk him out to my life now mm. and just say, look what we get to do mm. and just, and just free the burdens. How was that process? Um, was it just sitting in meditation? Meditation journal. Um, mm. it was real time, you know, it wasn't like we can choose to go into those moments. And then there's also moments like driving around and I would just be like, fuck, I don't have cancer anymore. Like what mm. am I going to do? And then in that moment you just got to kind of like sit up straight take some breaths and just honor like which version of me is here right now, which version mm-hmm. of me is needing this love, what needs to release this burden that they've been carrying for 45 years now. Yeah. So all this was like the, the healing of this, these 45 years were like the healing of the child mm-hmm. and everything that you went through up until 45, 46 mm-hmm. yeah. was all from what you were experiencing as the child. Yep. And it took that long to actually heal that yes. fully. Wow. 
That's it's just <laughs> like the whole story. What like what do you? Why do you feel like your life has looked the way that it has? What is the deeper purpose behind it? Um, it is like we talked about in the beginning, like the healing of these lineages, mm-hmm. the generations. You know, like I've done some constellation work in Mexico, and the the seven generations of men back were all these like warriors fighters that would never give love a chance they would never like and that's love of women love of the life like it was always like we're on and that's my experience of childhood like we're on like we're we're, we got to be at the ready and so in like this this is healing it's healing all of my shit like i've healed asthma i've healed eczema i've healed uh i'm not i don't i haven't been allergy tested in a while but i'm pretty sure that's very minimal if anything i've healed cancer Mm depression all the, I've healed all I've rid myself of all these toxic emotions from my lineage and I get to teach other men how to do this fuck yeah mm-hmm. I get yeah. to teach other men I get to show other men the way like mm. I'm, I'm a way shower like I can show you out of this emotional turmoil that mm. that I've like I've walked through every pretty much every fathomable emotional turmoil that I can think of mm. and Right, flag my fly my flag high like i talked we talked about saturday night like put mm. up the bat signal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. be like hey, yo if you want to rid yourself of like your physical pain your sickness you're, you're always having colds like whatever it is like let's get to the emotions of it like if you struggle with depression or every man i talk to on a call or whatever it always comes down to self-worth mm. yeah it don't always f- is don't right? feel worthy it's always that let's fucking worthy. heal that yeah. shit hmm and I think it's a beautiful thing to go to show like you are doing it. Like yeah. I am a representation of that. <laughs> like you yeah. have, you've held space for me. Um, my first plant, like real plant medicine ceremony was mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. Um, and we were able to experience the ceremony on Saturday too. Yeah. Where we both kind of held space for one another. Yeah. Which was really cool is like you're, you're now giving your purpose. Yeah. To men. Thank and you. And like I'm, I'm a representation of it. So. Yeah, thank you very much. I want to yeah. say a little bit on that. Is that, yeah. um, like to watch you, like you're you're one of the ones that's truly ready for that. There's a lot of people that want it, and they think they're ready for it, and they go do it, and they're not. And so one of the thing, one of the hugest lessons, like I mean, I'm a psychedelic facilitator. Like it's what I do, and I will always push people off on the psychedelics and say you need to do more work as a human being. You did so much work as a human being where you got to the point where you earned that, the receptivity, the right to be there. Mm -hmm. And it shows because you've, I mean, your life is just hockey sticks since then. And so if you hadn't done the work leading up to it, that wouldn't have happened. I appreciate you and that so much and Mm -hmm. I have so much love for you. And I, I totally, totally agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and all of us here like breathwork facilitators i think yeah like people do have to do that work because if i got and i've seen it with a lot of people when i was in costa rica with Mm -hmm. 40 people who were like nine to five workers yeah um and in multiple instances where they haven't done the work before and it makes it even harder for them yep like i i'm grateful for myself that I am able to comprehend what is going on um, and be able to, because like on Saturday, like crazy shit, like crazy. Um, 
but it's the work I've done with you. It's the work mm-hmm. I've done with you that has allowed me to be like, okay, I know how to integrate this now. Right. Yep. And I think that's a big thing for people to understand yeah. is that this work takes a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which yes. you know, which you know too. So yeah. yeah we, we just had that conversation today. Yeah. Yeah, the client of mine that just wants to, like, I think I should just do an ayahuasca, Sarah. I'm like, no, nah, mm. you need to breathe for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. just breathe. You don't need to do any of that yeah. with, the, with the distortions from the mind. And, yeah. then, you know, when we just open ourselves up to such a powerful medicine without doing any of the work, um, brilliant. And that's cool that you took the time mm. and you had such a wonderful guide in Sam mm. to really lead the way. That's powerful. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, it's cool to see, like, you're, you're just, still going through the healing yeah like mm. for your family that's something that we talked about on saturday yeah. night is mm-hmm. like it keeps going and you're you're continuously doing it for your family for your sister mm-hmm. for and i that's something that i felt too i think that's something we both felt really strongly yeah was like a lot of people when we get into breath work meditation or plant medicine we think it's just for us mm-hmm. like i just have to heal myself yeah and then you get into this work and you realize like, whoa. Yeah. One of the things I said on Saturday was like, oh, that's not mine. Yes. And also for my like mom's side, like telling them that wasn't yours to hold on to. And we don't realize that until we get into these different states. Like a lot of the things that we're holding on to is, is not ours, but we have to go through the healing yeah. for our lineage, our ancestors. Totally. And the, and the beauty of it is, is that we are the, like that entry point. Mm. Like we do, we got, you got to get yourself, like handle your symptoms. Like what's going on in your life. That's going to get you to the point where you can even see mm. like I'm carrying lineage, feminine lineage, pain of the feminine in my body. And, and you know what? I know it's not mine mm. because if you don't know, if you don't have that, even Awareness. that language mm. to even say that you're like, God, this just won't go away. Mm. Like I have this left side pain all the time. And it's like, what's going on here? Huh. Everything I, I massage balls and Theraguns and yeah. whatever. And it's like, it's not yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Powerful. yeah. This work allows us to, to open up to that and have a different perspective. Um, I think that's one of like with, with breath work and everything is it, it allows us to have that different perspective to not see things so much from the mind, but, open up ourselves to our heart, open up Mm -hmm. ourselves to this different perspective of it's like, we're not so much in it. Mm -hmm. We can observe it, zoom out and be like, Oh, I understand where that's coming from. Totally. Hmm. Sam, thank you so much, bro, for being here and you're sharing your story. It's truly inspiring. And, uh, I feel it's really going to help so many people hearing mm-hmm. and knowing that they can uh, find and work with someone like yourself um, if they're truly struggling. They can. There's help out there and there's people yeah. out there that are light, that are love, that mm. can lead them. Mm. Um, what's the best way people can find you? First of all, I want to thank you two for doing <laughs> for coming together and doing what you do with thank the you. Saturday Breathworks and the thing and the stuff that you guys are building. It's I, I just love being front row seat for that. It's, Bro, I think so, you're going to be a part of it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. like hearing, hearing, hearing you talk right now, I can't yeah. wait to have you um, really be a part of it in many ways. Um, people will, will highly benefit and grow from being in your presence. So Thank you. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited to work together. Yes, brother. I love that. Thank you so much. Mm. Very grateful for that. And this space, like creating this to talk about these things and have these conversations, like, again, you don't, 
uh, we don't get to these moments by accident. We get to these moments by putting in the time and the work and these things don't come to us. Again, it's not about what we want. Like mm. you guys have become the men that created the space. Like you are the living embodiment of this. Thank you. And that's thank beautiful. You. So thank you guys for that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. How can much. people find you? Yes. Uh, Instagram's the best way at Sam Gibbs Morris, G I B B S. Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you again, my brother, for coming yeah. on and sharing mm -hmm. your space. I thank appreciate you, thank you, you and your work. Appreciate you so thank much. You thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend. Drop the podcast a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.